seven hits from the Jewish songbook. This will take us right through the end of this month. We have one more hit. Next week's going to be Psalm 145, Great is the Lord. And then we're going to start a brand new series. I'm thinking probably 1 Corinthians about a church that had some problems. They had some issues, but we learned a lot of really good lessons from how they dealt with those. So I'm looking forward to a new study through a book in the New Testament. So today, May 24th, Psalm 95, sing for joy. I had a couple of people text me when they found out what this was going to be about. And they said, do you continually always bring up your wife in your sermon titles? Yes. But first, and this is the caveat that we have as we look at the outline of this psalm, sing for joy, but first, soften your heart and open your ears. This psalm, which is kind of a two-parter, almost looks like somebody interrupted about a little more than halfway through. And it's almost as though they're singing all these wonderful praises and they're talking about God's great attributes and his mighty acts. And then all of a sudden, you know, you can hear the record player going, the needle gets scratched off of the vinyl and somebody breaks in and says, but first I have a word of exhortation and admonition for you. And that's what happens in the second part of this psalm. It's like a mini sermon that breaks in in the midst of all this praise. So I think that for our purposes, the second half needs to happen first because once we understand what's happening in the references in the second half, it's going to give context to the first half. And then we're going to start to say, oh, I get it now. This makes a whole lot more sense overall. So you're going to have to hang in there with me through the explanation of part number two. And I would like to read that, uh, the part that says, we interrupt this portion of our worship service to bring you this word of warning. This is what it says, starting at uh, the second half of verse seven. Today, if only you would hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did at Meribah, as you did that day at Massah in the wilderness, where your ancestors tested me. They tried me, though they had seen what I did. For 40 years, I was angry with that generation. I said, they are a people whose hearts go astray, and they have not known my ways. So I declared an oath in my anger. They shall never enter my rest. Wow. I mean, don't hold back, God. Tell us how you really feel. It's a pretty stern warning, is it not? You think maybe to try to put this in context, to think why there might be a need for somebody to put the timeout sign in there and stop the worship service for a word of admonition. Do you think there may be something happening today that would be similar? Do you think people may be thinking a little bit more about God today than they did, say, two months ago? I would certainly hope so. I mean, we've got the Australia fires, which now seem like distant history almost, although I'm sure that the people in Australia are not thinking that tornadoes all through our south in the U.S., earthquakes, we had one just out in Nevada a couple of weeks ago, floods right here in Michigan, something definitely unexpected, not a great time to have a flood situation, locusts in the Middle East, and of course, a global pandemic. If these don't sound biblical in scope and apocalyptic, I don't know what, what else we could find that would uh, lean us in that direction, but my goodness, I think it's getting people's attention. Here's something that we start to see happening all the way back in the Old Testament with Moses leading the people out of Egypt toward the promised land. 
and we can see that they had lots of reasons for rejoicing. Dr. Pike mentioned a couple of them in some of those verses he provided for us leading up to our worship time together. And we know that they had reason to rejoice, especially even after they had made it safely through the Red Sea to the other side. I mean, yeah, I would want to rejoice. We should be shouting and screaming at the tops of our lungs and singing, praise God, he got us through an impossible situation. And yet we see this breaking into this Psalm, talking about something that happened with the same group of people under the same leader that caused them to start to need some refresher courses about trusting God, even when things start to look bleak. In verses seven and eight, we start to see that there were these, it's a two named place that happened in two different locations. Now, how many Jefferson cities do you think there are in the United States? Quite a few, right? There'd be a number of states and they would all have a Jefferson city in them somewhere. Well, there are actually two Meribah slash Massa cities or dwellings in the Middle East. And the reason that it had a double name was because it was named for two of the different things that happened there. Testings and quarrelings. That's what those names meant. And there were two different testings and quarrelings. So it's kind of a, it's a, a little strange convoluted way of saying that yes, it's a two-part name and they're in both locations. And that's what happened. First time at Rephidim in the desert of Sin. The second time at Kadesh near Kadesh Barnea in the desert of Zin with a Z. And no, those are not different spellings of the same location. They were two different locations at two different times. The details are clearly very different. So we can't assume that the writer was simply misspelling something and it was actually part of the same incident. It's not, two different incidents. That's important because we learn things because of the differences in the two incidences. First of all, this reference in the second part of this rather unusual Psalm talks about Moses' frustration when the people quarreled. And Moses first asked him, why are you angry at me? Why are you quarreling with me? Didn't you see what God did way back in the wilderness there? He got us through the Red Sea. He's provided manna and quail. That all happened on this trip as well. And then they were starting to quarrel with God as well. And Moses is saying, why are you quarreling with God? Don't you trust him? I mean, you've seen his handiwork. What is the root of quarreling, especially with leaders? We've had some good discussions with some of my friends and my wife and daughter and I have had these discussions in our own home this last couple of weeks. What is the root of quarreling, especially with leaders? I think it's mistrust. And as we've seen, I've had to turn the news off lately. Uh, we haven't watched a lot of news because I was just getting so frustrated watching all the people with mistrust, even in their questions. Everybody had a question. It was as though they didn't trust that the answers that were given were good enough for them because maybe somebody was withholding something or maybe they had a different motive for why they were pitching something the way they were. Maybe there was a slant to their reporting that was different than the one I would like to see. And so there's just this distrust all over the place. It seems pervasive and not just with one side of the aisle or the other if you're thinking politics. And so yeah, it's easy to distrust people when you're not sure if they're really giving you straight shooting truth. I'm not saying that Moses was doing that. I don't believe he was. I think he was extremely truthful with the people of Israel. And yet, even though the people had clearly seen good, solid leadership from Moses, who was obeying God and doing what God asked him to do, even though it was difficult at times, they still had a mistrust of him and of his brother Aaron. So we have some lessons that needed to be learned, both from the people and from Moses himself. Yes, it's true 
The Bible teaches us that people are supposed to trust their leaders, their spiritual leaders, because they're put there as a gift to the body by God. It says so in Romans. And yet, if the leaders are not pointing them to God, then there's reason for mistrust. I think that Moses was doing everything the way he should have, especially leading up to the first rock incident, the rock fountain, when God brought water to take care of the people's needs because of Moses' obedience. Then we also learn, though, that leaders are supposed to acknowledge that it's God the people are trusting and that the leaders are really merely a go-between and that they're supposed to be obedient to God as well. And when people start equating uh, arguing with them with arguing with God, we've got a problem. I've known a couple of pastors in uh, my four decades of ministry who lost their ministries because they started getting a little bit too big for their britches. And they started saying basically to the people, well, if you argue with me, then it's just like arguing with God because God tells me what to tell you. I would get a little fearful of that kind of leadership, quite frankly, because I'm not in a place of being able to determine whether what God told me was absolute authoritative because I need to go to his word. And that's where we're seeing the authority coming through today. Now, if the word tells me to say something, then I need to do that because I know it's accurate. But if God just if I think God may have been telling me something and I haven't really validated it in God's word, and yet I'm telling people, you need to follow me the way I'm following God, I hope that you'd be smart enough to be like the people of Berea and that you'd be of a noble mind and you'd go to the word yourself and check it out. And if I'm wrong, I hope there are people who love me enough to correct me in that as well. So all that aside, I think that leaders are supposed to lead as they follow God's leadership, and Moses needed to learn this as well. The first time that we see the rock incident, God was going to rock their world because he was going to show them his power in how he would provide for the water they needed. I don't know if you've been out in some of the desert parts of our country or not. It's very dry and you can get thirsty real fast. Same was true, especially where these people were going across the wilderness in a very desert, dry region. So people were thirsty. They start whining and crying. Why have you brought us out here? You've only brought us out here to die, even though we could have languished out there. They were just whining again, just like they did so many times on their trek across the wilderness. So Moses takes his uh, problem to God. He says, I'm going to inquire of the Lord. And the Lord tells him, okay, Mo, here's what you do. Strike the rock, do it in front of the elders and in front of all the people, and water will come out of the rock for the people to drink. And this time, Moses obeyed. He did that. He got everybody gathered together. He got the elders together that was representing the people, the, uh, the leaders under Moses and Aaron, who also helped lead different groups of people there. And he struck the rock with the staff. This is very important, the same staff that we're going to talk about in just a moment. And it was God for the win, because God clearly showed the people that the same God that got them through the Red Sea, where there was too much water, could also provide water where there was not enough water. And he did it both times. It was not Moses who did it. God did this, I believe, in such a way that people could not argue that it was God's power at work. Now, we need a little flashback here, a couple of flashbacks that happen as we start to think, wait a minute, doesn't this sound familiar? Yes, it does. Flashback number one, from rock number one, where God provided water from the rock, all the way back to the Nile before the people were released by Pharaoh. Let my people go. And so we see that one of the plagues 
that happened, one of the things that God did to try to soften Pharaoh's heart was that he instructed Moses to go out to the Nile with that same rod, that staff, and to strike the water of the Nile. And you remember what happened to the water? It turned to blood. Now, there have been some skeptics that said, oh, it was probably just some red algae inside the river or some of the sediment down below that got stirred up because of some flooding. No, that, that's not the case because we read through that entire passage and we understand that everything turned to blood. The people recognized it. It was not drinkable, not just because there was sediment there, but even the water that were in the pots that they'd saved for cooking in the kitchens turned to blood at the very same time. It was a miracle. It was something completely outside of our abilities to be able to comprehend, apart from a God who's powerful enough to take charge of creation. And he should be able to because he's the creator after all. So Pharaoh needed to know about God's power. That was the purpose of all these plagues. Same thing was true, flashback number two, as we think about another water being transformed in some way, this time not from water to blood, but water to wine. That was Jesus' very first miracle at the wedding of Cana as he was introducing himself in his earthly ministry. So what happens is there's a contrast. At first, you look at that and you say, yeah, there's no comparison. Well, that's true. It's not supposed to be meant to compare. They're meant to be contrasted with one another. We see that the water turned to blood was a divine judgment, whereas the water into wine was a divine blessing. And we can see that because Jesus, who came along, was introducing himself, and he displayed God's power so that the disciples who were there to witness that miracle would also know God's power. Intriguing contrast. Rock number one, struck in the desert of sin by Moses in obedience to God. The Nile struck also in obedience was a divine judgment. But then when Jesus comes on the scene, all the things in the Old Testament that pointed to him as coming as the true Messiah, he introduces something knowing that his audience, especially those disciples who had been grown up on all these wonderful stories about Moses, they knew all about that. They would have recognized and thought, aha, I see how this is very different from the water into blood. This is water into wine. And he stayed the best for last. It was a wonderful juxtaposition of meanings that as you start to compare all of these and contrast them, you start to see this great, wonderful meaning taking place and it helps you appreciate even more all that was set up ahead of time in the Old Testament so that Jesus would fulfill every one of the things that we read about in his coming. He also fulfilled something in Hebrews chapter 3 in which the Bible talks to us about Jesus being one who was greater than Moses. And he was so great that, yes, he had to proclaim judgment upon sin, but he did so through an act of grace with both of those things happening together on the cross. We mention that a lot because it's important. Now, we see some intriguing insights here about rock number two being struck. This is the second time that the people are getting thirsty yet again. And it's almost as though they've completely forgotten about the first time. And they're starting to whine and cry and say, Moses, you need to do this. We're quarreling with you. You should give us water. We're so sick and tired of you leading us to these places where we're just going to die of thirst. When are you going to do something about it? And this time, Moses had just, they just, they got on his last nerve, to use a Southern expression. And he had just about been fed up. And so we understand that when he's going to be striking the rock this time, he's doing so out of disobedience. This time, God had told him, this time, go out and speak to the rock. You don't have to strike it. Just speak to it. Now, 
Think about that. If you're a, a child of God in the people of Israel, you're out there, you have witnessed the first miracle when Moses strikes the rock with his staff, the rock cracks open, a gushing fountain of water just pours out enough to not only give you water, but all the water that you need for your livestock. You've seen that, right? Now, the second time around, if Moses walks out and says, okay, get assembled, we're going to come out to this big rock over here, you're probably thinking to yourself, ooh, this is going to be good. And yet this time, if Moses were to have been obedient, if he had just spoken to the rock and said, so that God's power may be seen, gush forth with water, and then the water comes forth, what's your reaction going to be? If I'm trying to put myself in those people's shoes, if he had done that, I'd be thinking, whoa, God is so powerful that he doesn't even have to strike the rock this time. God made that happen, and he just spoke to it. But as we start to think about some other correlations with what happened as Jesus came on the scene later, all the things that foreshadowed his coming, we recognize that there are a couple of passages in the New Testament that talk about how Jesus was struck for us. And now we can just speak to him. We can just talk to him. Numbers 28 talks about God's instruction to Moses, just speak to the rock this time. Unfortunately, Moses disobeyed because he had a fit of anger and he struck the rock, not just once, but twice. And yet God was still gracious enough to pour water out to those people, even though Moses was disobedient. That's a lot of grace. Then in Romans 8.34, we can see in the New Testament how Jesus, after he had accomplished the work of paying for our sins, taking care of the need for justice, and yet pouring out his grace so that as his blood was poured out, it became the atonement for our sins, the blood of the new covenant, the new testament, which was forged right there on the cross. Then when he ascended to be with his father, he became our advocate. So now we can just talk to him directly, and he's pleading our case before the father. We don't have to strike him any longer. It's already been struck, and now he's available. We just have to speak to him. Isn't that beautiful meaning? All that's in just the second half, and this is the sermon part of the psalm. <laughs> it's a reason for rejoicing even there, but we're not quite there yet. So back to Moses. Meanwhile, back to Psalm 95. Shouldn't Moses have been punished for disobeying God the way he did? Striking the rock in anger that way? Saying, how long must I put up with these stiff-necked people? That sounds a little like something that Jesus said later, too. I can understand frustration in leaders when people get on your nerves that way, but Moses should not have done that. He should have been obedient to what God had for him to do. Shouldn't Moses be punished? Yes. <laughs> but even in his punishment, God said, okay, I'm still going to pour out water. Moses, you can't get into the promised land. You're going to get to people there. You're going to get to look over at the promised land from a mountain, but you don't get to go in yourself because you disobeyed me. And yet God did not withhold water and kill everybody right there in the desert. True story. I went to... I can't remember how many years ago, four or five years ago, I think, I went to a conference here in the Ann Arbor area, and there was a man speaking to us from India. He had come having shared some of these Bible stories with different people who had come from a very different culture, and they didn't know these stories like some of us have grown up learning them if we've grown up in Sunday school. And he said, God put it on his heart to share that particular story about the two rock-striking incidents with Moses, and he was thinking to himself, Man, I don't know. I, I don't know about that kind of story. How are people going to react to that? For one thing, they're going to think Moses is not a great leader. And for another, they're, they're going to think, well, God is so mean. He's such a mean God because he punished Moses by not allowing him to go into the promised land. 
but it's in the Bible. So I'm going to share the story and I'm going to see what people's reaction are because the Bible is the Bible and I'm going to trust it because it's God's word. So he shared these two stories and you know what happened? Really intriguing is this man had just had this happen to him a few weeks before he came to speak to us in Ann Arbor. So it was fresh on his mind. He said, I was almost in disbelief because one man came up to me after that session. <laughs> we had unpacked those and people had a chance to discuss them amongst themselves. And he said, I really want to follow the God of Moses. And he said, the guy was a little surprised. And he said, well, why is that? He said, because the gods that I have been serving would never have poured the water out for the people. And he never would have shown grace by allowing Moses to get the people over to the promised land that way. He would have probably killed them on the spot. He said, this is a God of grace. Interesting, is it not? I found it was extremely intriguing because we have a comparison from outside our own culture. And this man was able to see that some people, even though they've been serving a pantheon of gods, when they come in contact with the God of Moses and the God of all the people that we study in the Bible, they have a very different reaction than some that we might have expected from them. So meanwhile, back to part one, it probably feels to you like it's taking 40 years for us to get all the way back around through the wilderness to part one of this psalm, but we made it. Hey. Listen as I read the first seven verses now of this psalm. Come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud for the rock, aha, for the rock of our salvation. Let us come before him with thanksgiving and extol him with music and song. For the Lord is the great God, the great king above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth and the mountain peaks belong to him. The sea is his, for he made it. And his hands formed the dry land. Come, let us bow down in worship. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is our God. And we are the people of his pasture, the flock under his care. Now we understand the reason for celebration. When our hearts are softened, our ears are opened, and then we can hear about the grace that God gives us so that we can sing. And we have good reason to sing for joy and talk about his mighty acts. Question for you as we start to think about how we might apply some of this in our own hearts and minds. Have you ever been in a tight spot? I mean, a really difficult place. And someone, or maybe more than one someone, helped you out of it? I'm going to be real personal and say, did you recognize who was ultimately responsible for that help? I'm thinking about Moses and the people, but I think that that happens to us as well. That sometimes there will be a provision made for us, and we think, oh, well, that was a nice coincidence. Or maybe we would have been praying for something, but we don't put the connections together and we don't see the relationship between the way we got saved out of that situation or provided for. And we don't give God the credit. We don't erupt in song and say, praise God, it was God who did that. And I think that we need to be cautious because it's easy for us to become hard hearted and to ignore the fact that God is providing every good gift for us. Any good thing that's ever happened to you has been because God loves you, because he cares about you. So part one of Psalm 95 shows us that this joyful noise, the reason that we can sing together and make a joyful noise together in worship is because we have a softened heart. I remember being away from home 
my first year of college, I moved away. It was only a three hour drive, so I wasn't that far away, but it felt like a long distance when I was there and started to get lonely, especially at night. And even though I had lots of reasons to complain about my mom's cooking and all that stuff before I left, the longer I was away from home, the more I really appreciated some of the stuff I had back home, including the fact that some of the things my parents had asked me to do or even commanded me to do as I was growing up, I used to really not like all that much. I remember being upset because they would be so cruel and unusual with their punishment, making me do things like take out the trash on a regular basis. I mean, come on. And yet when I started to get on my own and realized, oh, wait a minute, if the dishes are dirty, uh, there's no magic dish fairy to wash them. My mom is not around. I have to wash the dishes. If the trash is going to get taken out, guess who gets to do it? All those self-disciplines that they were trying to instill in me were starting to come back to me. And I recognized they'd been saying, you're going to appreciate this one day. And guess what? Yeah, I appreciated them. I eventually came around because I was having a softened heart. And as I was doing so, my ears were opened and I could hear the echoes of their voices in my head. And I kind of get the impression that's what's happening with part one and part two of Psalm 95. These people are singing and they're making a joyful noise. And then suddenly there are these voices from the past that are saying, oh, wait a minute, don't forget, you need to have a softened heart and open ears so that you can not forget that it's God who is providing for you. And if you're at a place where you feel like, I don't really feel like singing to, today because there are a lot of bad things happening all around me. That's the time to read Psalm 95 and go, oh, wait a minute, I need a time out. I need to soften my heart. I need to open my ears. I need to look back at all the things that God has done getting me to this point and not forget that he's still able today. Our God is still capable. Our building committee needs your prayers because we've come up with some sticker shock as we met this last week. And we checked with one more builder trying to see if we can find a way to get the price down low enough that we can really make a, a charge ahead and get our building going. And I had to take a long walk after that meeting because I was disheartened as I started to think, it feels like we're coming up against another impossibility. Well, yeah, humanly speaking, it probably is. But of all the weeks for me to have to be studying all week long to get ready to share this sermon with you today, this teaching from Psalm 95, it was as though God said, yeah, you're going to need it, buddy, <laughs> because you need to be reminded that even though if we get up to a place that seems impossible, like the Red Sea, or in the middle of a desert where there's no water, or in the middle of a building program where there's no money, and the cost keeps going up on buildings, I'm still God. I've got this. You can trust me. When we soften our hearts toward our Heavenly Father, our ears are opened and we hear him more clearly. That's happened to me this week. And I'm praying it's going to happen to you as well, no matter what you may be facing that seems like an impossible task right now. And many of us have been facing what we feel are impossible tasks in the last two months. The sound of singing does something to us. And I don't know about you, but some of these songs, and thank you, Dr. Pipe, for choosing these songs each week, they have really ministered to me. And sometimes, because I get a sneak peek, sometimes I'll cheat and I'll listen to them on Saturday night because I know I'll be busy preparing for this teaching time on Sunday mornings. So I'm not paying as close attention on Sunday mornings as I would the night before. And I've been so softened in my own heart and my ears have been opened and I've been so brought into God's presence through these songs and I pray that you will experience that same kind of worship 
as you listen to the songs that Steve chooses for us each week. Well, the sound of singing does something. It stirs us on a deeper level than we can possibly comprehend. It goes beyond just concert-level goosebumps. When God is the, the real person we're singing to, and when he's getting the glory from corporate singing, I'm telling you, it stirs the soul. Several months ago, I had preached from a guy, uh, I gave his testimony in a capsulized version. His name is Dr. Paul Lin. And uh, I've queued up his testimony on YouTube to show up on our closed group Facebook page at 1 p.m. So it'll just show up this afternoon for you. I really urge you to listen to his whole testimony because it's pretty powerful. And I'm, I'm giving you a spoiler alert already. It was music that God used to soften his heart so that his ears were open to the truth and that's what brought Dr. Paul Lim all the way from being uh, in disbelief that a God even existed to being maybe a maybe he does sort of agnostic all the way to, the, to saying, yeah, I'm just going to throw caution to the wind here. I believe there's plenty of evidence. He's spoken to me. I know he's real. I know it goes way outside everything that I have been taught to believe because he's been taught by science and that we put all of our faith in that which is empirically observable but he knew what God did for him. And so please watch that testimony this afternoon. Let me also share this as I close because I thought it was so powerful. God's presence is powerful. And when it creeps in on us, sometimes it happens in the midst of maybe a pandemic or in the midst of real crisis in our lives. But God loves us enough to break in when we need him the most. And his presence is unmistakable. It's hard to describe it unless you've experienced it. And Dr. Julian Urban experienced it. This is from his own words because he shared it with a friend who put it out because he thought it was encouraging. He was right in the middle of this whole pandemic when things were breaking out. And it was very early, as you know, in Italy. And Lombardy, Italy got hit especially hard. And Dr. Julian was a part of that. So let me read directly from him so I can get it right. Dr. Julian Urban. He's 38 years old. He's a medical doctor serving in a hospital in Lombardy, Italy. And he spoke about the situation inside the hospital where he and his colleagues were fighting against COVID-19. He says, never in my darkest nightmares did I imagine that I would see and experience what has been going on in Italy in our hospital the past three weeks. The nightmare flows and the river gets bigger and bigger. He speaks about how a few patients suddenly grew into hundreds and their hospital was overwhelmed. Now, we are no longer doctors, but sorters who decide who should live and who should be sent home to die. Though all these patients paid Italian health taxes throughout their lives. In this unlikely situation inside the hospital, some doctors have come to know God. Dr. Julian wrote this, until two weeks ago, and this is uh, several weeks old, so this is going way back to probably a, at least a month ago now. Until two weeks ago, my colleagues and I were atheists. It was normal because we're doctors. We had learned that science excludes the presence of God. He talked about how he used to mock his parents for going to church in the past. And then all that changed after Dr. Julian met a 75-year-old pastor who was admitted to the hospital. And I'm quoting from Dr. Julian now. He says, nine days ago, a pastor was admitted. He was a kind man, and he had serious breathing problems. 
he had a Bible with him and it impressed all of us physicians that he would read it to the dying as he held their hand. We doctors were tired, psychologically discouraged, physically finished. When we had time, we listened to this elderly pastor. We had reached our limits. We could do no more. People were dying every day. We were exhausted. We had two colleagues who had contracted COVID-19 and who had died and others that we knew had been infected. And then Dr. Julian and his colleagues realized we need to start asking God for help. When we talk to each other now, he says, we cannot believe that although we were once fierce atheists, we are now daily in search of peace, asking the Lord to help us continue so that we can take care of the sick. Dr. Julian said that the 75-year-old pastor died from COVID. But something was different about this man's death. He said, despite having had over 120 deaths here in three weeks, we were not destroyed. That pastor had managed, despite his condition, to bring us peace that we had previously not known how to find. The pastor went to the Lord, and soon we will follow him if the situation continues like this. And I, I would like to insert a little caveat to say he's, he's right. And if it doesn't happen quickly from COVID, it's going to happen to all of us eventually. But even with the threat to their lives, Dr. Julian said he was thankful because he found God. I haven't been home for six days, he said as he was writing this. I don't know when I ate last. And realized his worthlessness on this earth and wants to use his last breath helping other people. And then he says, I'm just happy to have returned or been reconciled with God while I'm surrounded by suffering and death of my fellow men. Dr. Julian's heart was softened, and it was softened by a real crisis, a life and death crisis. It took the victorious life and courageous death of a strong believer in Christ to open this doctor's heart and then his ears. Now he can hear God clearly. Now he can know personally that God is a God of grace and mercy and that God offers his eternal life to everyone who will hear him and respond by putting their trust in him. Have you been able to sing and shout with joy for the God of your salvation? You can. You can if you have softened your heart. You can if you have humbled yourself. You can if you have placed yourself as a sheep under the good shepherd's care. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this psalm has brought me to a place in my own life where I've recognized how easy it is for me to harden my heart. And I want a soft heart and open ears. And I pray that those who are hearing me right now would also have a soft heart and that their ears would be opened to the good news that you offer salvation to everybody, including them. I pray that just like Dr. Julian has told us in his testimony, that there would be so many others globally who have opened themselves to the truth that you are a God who is for them, that you love them, that you love them enough to die in their place to pay for their sins. I pray that the reality 
of this pandemic that has swept around our globe would be used in a positive way to grab our attention, just like you were able to grab people's attention in Psalm 95 and the people in the wilderness when they would come up against something that seems insurmountable and that through this insurmountable time, you would show up to say, I'm still God, I'm still sovereign, and I'm still powerful. Trust me. And I pray that we will trust you implicitly. And I thank you that you're going to continue to pour your grace out and that all we have to do is speak to you because you've already been struck on our behalf. And I thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. May we erupt in praise because of your salvation.